Hey, would you open your Bibles to the book of uh, Philippians? I'm going to read verses 1 through 9. Actually, I'm going to read 1 through 11. I said 1 through 9, but I keep reading 1 through 11, so third service, I'm getting it right. Therefore, verse 1, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from His love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, that's a good if. if you, has that happened in your life? If you're experiencing any of that, right? So he's writing them from prison, saying, if, if, you're, if there's anything that's happening good in your life because of Jesus, then make my joy complete. In other words, I'm pretty happy about what's going on over here, but if you guys will do this next thing, this just really completes the picture for me. Complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind, to nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Interesting, by the way, that is the exact opposite of what Satan, Lucifer, or, and Adam both did. They wanted to be equal with God and use it to their advantage. And he was equal with God, and I'm not using it to my advantage. Just a free one for you. Made himself nothing, verse 7, by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask for your word to become a light and a lamp for us today. I pray that, Lord, that you'll speak through me, You'll speak instead of me, in addition to me, in spite of me. Your word speaks to us today. And Lord, of all the chaos of the week and the busyness and the fast pace and everything, we just take a breath, take a moment to breathe in and to allow your spirit to speak to us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If I were to try to sum this up in a sentence, it's not easy, <laughs> but it seems to be that humility in me brings harmony with you and happiness from Him. It's humility in me brings harmony with you and happiness from Him, that there's this attachment of humility doing stuff that is in a humble position that actually brings joy. We talked last week that pursuing happiness is a, is a false you just can't do it. You, the more you pursue it, the less happy you are. And so in this, say, man, you know, in, in humility, make my joy complete. Like this is from this position of, of humility. Now, when I say humility, you guys could think, well, what's, what's the definition of humility? Because in humility, sorry, but what, Marilyn Monroe on you there. Um, sorry, the vent. <laughs> I guess you couldn't see that if you weren't in the front row, but you all know what I'm talking about. What is humility 
to me. And if I were to ask you all to write a definition of humility and turn it in, you'd probably all turn in something different. And it would probably be close or that. And it's, you'd think, well, this is actually a lot harder than I thought it was. And, but you think, but I could certainly identify humble behavior in somebody. And I think that that is uh, something that we all tend to think that we can do. Because we look at somebody's behavior and think, okay, well, that dude is totally confident, totally ambitious. There's no way that that's humble. But that dude over there is calm and peaceful, so he, he's humble, or, or she is absolutely just achieving, achieving, achieving. There's no way that she's humble, or that one over there, she's just really quiet and meek, so she's humble. Those are all different definitions of humility that I think actually just confuse our personalities with what humility actually is. If you were to say, uh, uh, let's say, do you guys know the DISC profile? If I say DISC profile, Myers-Briggs, a lot of you know Enneagram language. You can say that someone who is uh, a D on the DISC, I don't know what the Myers-Briggs letters are, an eight on the Enneagram, that that person is totally confident, totally driving, and there's no way that person is humble, okay? But you could say someone like me, and sometimes like if there's something that's been said about me is that, Darren, you're such a humble leader, which doesn't help, by the way, because then it makes me prideful, and then it's just a big problem. <laughs> But I, I'm going to offer myself on the chopping block for this because uh, it's, it's part of what I do. It's part of my charm. <laughs> that some of the behavior that you would look at me and say, oh, he's totally humble, is really just me being really, really insecure and afraid. Masked as humility. It's me. It's pride with a scared face. Like, I, it's really pride because I don't want to fail and I don't want to be embarrassed. So I'm acting humble, but I'm really being prideful. Do you see how devious that is? And on the other hand, someone like, and I'm going to say uh, his name because uh, we live in Nashville. <laughs> and, I, and I mean it, but you look at a guy like Dave Ramsey. Some of you guys work for Dave. If you listen to Dave on the radio, you think, boy, that dude, I swear he's about to blow a vein out of his temple. Like, he's just, he is very confident and one of the most humble men I've ever met. Shannon and I uh, uh, went to a Christmas party at Uncle Dave's house last year. And it was me and some other pastors and our wives. And, and I honestly, this actually isn't even an aw shucks routine. It was a genuine, like, this is actually factual. I don't know what we were doing there. Like, but he invited us there. And, and these are people, like, they're people at this little party that you would recognize their names and you've maybe bought their books. And, and so I'm watching Dave, we come to the house, and he's actually parking cars in the driveway. You know, he doesn't have people for that, he's doing it. He's doing parking lot ministry in the driveway. Uh, you're looking around for him when the party starts, and what's Dave doing? He's serving drinks to people. He's pouring. And at one point, I'm looking around like, I wonder where Dave went. And you know where Dave was? He was talking to people who weren't in the world standard, important people. He wasn't talking to the guy that had sold 30 million books. He was talking to people that are just lovely people over in the corner. The point being that humility, from a biblical standpoint, does coexist with ambition. But without humility, I cannot have harmony with you and with God. And without harmony with you and without God, I can't have that kind of joy that the Bible promises us. Let's, if you don't mind, let's set us a, a definition for humility that will be a working definition for the rest of our limited time together. Uh, C.J. Mahaney in his book, uh, 
humility says that humility is honestly assessing ourselves in light of God's holiness and our sinfulness. That's a pretty good working definition. If you didn't go to seminary, I'm going to give you the Darren version of that. It's just believing the truth about yourself. That's just it. I'm believing the truth about myself. And what is the truth from a biblical standpoint? Tim Keller says it better than I ever could, which is about everything he says. It's better than I could. The Christian gospel is that I am so flawed that Jesus had to die for me. Yet I am so loved and valued that Jesus was glad to die for me. That's Hebrews 12, for the joy that was set before him. This leads to deep humility and deep confidence at the same time. It undermines both swaggering and sniveling, right? That's funny. I cannot feel superior to anyone, and yet I have nothing to prove to anyone. I do not think more of myself or less of myself. Instead, I just think of myself less. So that will be our working definition of humility, believing the truth about ourself. There was an article um, this week in the Harvard Business Review. It was almost as if they knew that I was doing a sermon on humility and wrote an article for me. So I appreciate that. The article uh, was about a Wall Street Journal, a journal article from the week before. And it, obviously, you can see the name that if humility is so important, why are leaders so arrogant? And it was a, 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 an op-ed piece based on this Wall Street Journal article. And the Wall Street Journal article was saying, man, hum, humble leaders are by far the best leaders. They get more done, more teamwork. There's all this research that's been done about it. And so this guy's piece in the Harvard Business Review was, so why do you keep putting arrogant people on the front page of your magazine, on your newspaper? Why is it that every day of the Wall Street Journal, there's some guy or girl that is arrogant and cocky and confident and not humble at all? But what this, uh, what this guy says in this piece that I think is just great is he says that humility and ambition need not be at odds. Indeed, humility in the service of ambition is the most effective and sustainable mindset for leaders who aspire to do big things in a world filled with huge unknowns. He goes on to say that we notice by far the lion's share of the world-changing luminaries are humble people. They focus on work, not themselves. They seek success. They are ambitious, but they are humbled when it arrives. They feel lucky, not all powerful. It's coming from a completely world secular research. And he uh, will go to the last part of this. He buries the lead like 14 paragraphs in. He talks about this book that Edgar Schein writes, but here's how he ends this piece. He says, we live in a world where ego gets attention, but modesty gets results where arrogance makes headlines, but humility makes a difference. Are we confident enough to stay humble? Are we strong enough to admit we don't have all the answers? Here's hoping we reach the right answers. I read this to you today because what I'm showing you is that this is literally just some guy that, you know, that is an intelligent, educated person saying, but that's what Paul said 2,000 years ago that do nothing out of selfish ambition and vain glory. And you make your joy complete. Because what they say in this is that if you do these things in this act in a humble way, your team will work better together. There's more results, the harmony of the team, it's happiness that's there. So why don't we just go be humble and go home? Right, in Jesus' name, amen, you're dismissed. Just be humble. Oh, wouldn't it be great if it was that easy? See, we live in a world that is full of 
I mean, the Bible says basically it's, it, the problem isn't even education, it's just sin that takes us here. And, and history has proven over and over again that if humans love anything, we love a good fight. You guys remember when the uh, Berlin Wall came down? Anybody? Raise your hand. If you're over 40, you do not lie to me because you know. You guys that are under 20, there was this wall between Germany. Anyway, you learn about it in history. But remember when the wall came down? David Hasselhoff was standing on the stage. Like you got Knight Rider up there and freedom has come to Germany. <laughs> and we were like, woohoo, Reagan dominates. And then the USSR fell apart and we won the Cold War without firing a shot. And we're like so excited. The, the war to end all wars. That's like the third war we had to end all wars. And what happened was the war to end all wars just broke out into the Bosnians and the Serbs and all these tribal factions that went back centuries that rose up to the top because humans fight. That's what we do. It wasn't lost on me. It was just maybe a couple of elections ago that one of the candidates asked about his top priority uh, militarily, whatever. He said uh, that Russia was a top priority and the other candidate made a, a snide comment about, well, the 1980s called and they want their policy back. They want their... <laughs> and of course, this past election, who was at the top of the list, right? Russia. Because people love to fight. And on a geopolitical sense, what happens over the years is we've seen it over and over again. We went in, we thought in one era, well, we're going to go, we're going to topple this dictator and then everybody will vote and be freedom, right? Remember Condi Rice walking around with her giant boots on and looking like a superhero? And do you remember that? And what happened? We, we toppled the, the dictator and fights broke out, the Kurds and the Turks. And, and then not to be outdone, uh, the, the, the later administration said, well, we'll just go with the Arab Spring and we'll start toppling dictators. And then more factions and what's happening in Syria is he's got these people that are fighting each other that have been fighting for centuries. Now, from the outside looking in, we think, we, they just, I could solve this problem right now. Just let it go. It's so easy. Just let that go. That was 500 years ago. Stop fighting. It's so easy when it's outside looking in. But inside, it's not so easy. And you can throw rocks at that, but if I pull the lens back to our country and the divisions that we're experiencing, it's not so easy. It's not so easy... I'm going to use an issue that is a hot-button issue, but I view it not as a political issue, but as a human rights issue. Abortion. In 1973, a Supreme Court ruled. Now, and you could actually maybe even justify it and say, well, we didn't have sonograms back then. We didn't know. But I can't, I mean, you look at a sonogram, and that little baby's smiling at you and pulling fingers. and It should be so easy. All we needed was more information and then we could be. We're educated. Now we figured it out. It's not so easy when you're in the middle of it. It's not so easy on the internet. It's not so easy. Look, even in your, like, you can think, well, I, I, that's them. This is me. In your own life, how many marriage problems have you solved in other people's marriages? All you got to do is this, quit doing that, and you're done. Right? I could solve all y'all's problems right now. Stop it. It's not so easy on the inside. And the Bible nails it because it's not just about education. Education is amazing and it's important and it's brilliant, but if it were just about education, racism would have been eviscerated from our culture. 
we know more now than we've ever known. And there's a meme that floats around the internet from time to time that says, you know, racists are not born, they're raised. And so, and again, the idea, if they just have an education, then they'll fix it. And yet it's not so easy. The Bible tells us that it's not so easy because it's nothing that can come from education from the outside that can come in and change me. It's a problem from the inside out of me. And he uses this, in this language here, he says, to do nothing out of vain, uh, wrong slide, selfish ambition and vain glory. Now, full disclosure, big surprise I'm about to lay on you right here. I am not a Greek scholar, but I play one on television. So you're gonna get your money's worth. I surround myself with other people that, that know this stuff, and this is what I've come to as I've researched this past week, that selfish ambition is a word, it's two words for us, but for Greek it was erathia. And it means, actually the language, and this might sound familiar, I'm just, this is actually straight out of strong, so I'm, let's see if this sounds familiar. According distinction, a desire to put oneself forward, a partisan and factious spirit which does not disdain low arts. <laughs> to put that differently, I'll hit you below the belt if that's what it takes to win. I'll do whatever it takes to get ahead. And it's used often, like Aristotle used it in political language. Paul is reverse engineering that into our language because it's one thing to sit and throw rocks at the politicians, ignoring that that's what I do in my life when I'm trying to put myself forward. I'm trying to just give you the best view of who I am, spinning it, and fascinatingly enough, the word originally was used as someone who spins wool. Aristotle took that word, Paul, the Greek took that word as one that spins wool and says, that's what you are doing here. You're just spinning something up. You're spinning a brand new story out of these loose ends. And that's what selfish ambition is. And he says, don't do anything out of that. Now, I think that what this is, is what the selfish ambition is, is what we do. The vain glory is why we do it. Now, your translation probably says vain conceit of the NIV we read. You can, and I did, I read like a whole bunch of these. I spent like five whole afternoon going down that one. But it's just a hard word to translate. Doxia, kino, kinodoxia. The word doxia means glory. Doxology is where we get our word doxology. Kino means empty, empty glory. Now, if you think of glory as what it is, which is weight, and meaning, and purpose, and texture. It's like the, the glory of God, the kabod that filled the, 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 ter, the tabernacle, that there was a weightiness to it, that that is what it's saying, an empty weightiness. And this was Tim Keller's uh, definition. It just simply means hungry for glory. You and I were born knowing desperate for, that we would matter, that we would have glory. It's like this visceral part of us, this memory, the eternity that's written on our hearts is this desire to matter, to, know, to be noticed and to know and do meaningful things. It's the worst thing that can happen to a human, I don't think is necessarily to be opposed or pushed back. The worst thing that can happen to a human is to be ignored, to not matter. That's why little babies who've grown up in an orphanage sometimes have what we would call in a medical community attachment disorder. 
They needed somebody and they weren't there for them. And so for us in our lives on a daily basis, waking up every morning with the memory of what once was, even if I can't even articulate it, written on my heart, I'll do whatever it takes to fill it, to matter and to have meaning and to have purpose, even if it means factions and partisan. And when someone rubs up against it and punches me in it, then I'm going to fight back, then I'm going to resist, and I'm going to, why is there fighting among you, James 5 says? Because of your selfish ambitions, that thing that's inside of you, and it's there because you know you had this memory of what it was supposed to be. And here's the thing. The Bible tells us that that self-centeredness, that the more that I'm aware that I don't have that glory, the harder I'm gonna try to fill it with something. And he gives this this really strong warning in Matthew chapter seven when he says that on that day that those of us who've rejected him and rejected his glory and tried to replace it with our own, that he's gonna look on us and this is the nightmare of the millennia to say, I don't even know you. The only eyes in the universe that matter, that you rejected, will say that I don't see you. And it sounds harsh, but we do that. It's kind of how the way things are, the laws of the universe. When someone is extraordinarily self-centered, what do you do? You don't go anywhere near them. You push away from them. You are. And the irony being that then the more that they try to push towards you with their self-centeredness, and it creates this spiral. Which, by the way, some of the work that Chris and Lisa Roman are doing, if you've got some of that, boy, they could ring that out like a chamois with you. The only eyes of the universe that would look on you and say, I don't even know who you are because you pushed away and tried to fill it with your glory. And here's the catch 22. The more we lack glory, the more I know that I lack it, the harder I work to fill it. And then I don't have it and I keep working and I keep filling and it's, it's a fool's errand. And so what do we do? The joy that you have wanted that you know exists that you just haven't had, how do we get it? He tells us. And he, he breaks it down really brilliantly because it's the Bible. He's, there's something coming from outside that has to happen and there's something that has to happen inside of you. He says here in verse five that in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature of God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made, listen, he made himself, listen, made himself nothing for you. Something happened outside of you that the God of the universe became one of us and made himself nothing so that you could be something. He drained himself of all of that. The eyes of the universe that mattered, his father's, he sent God, why have you forsaken me? God turned his back on him. It's a nightmare. And he did that so that you wouldn't have to. It's so beautiful. And then he says, that's what happened outside. He did this for you. And now for you and I who have walked into this relationship with Christ, have the same mindset that is in Christ. When you're within relationships with others, that mindset with Christ, have that mindset in you. Our culture, I have the same mindset as my political party. I'm just parroting what I've heard. You might have the same mindset as uh, your, you know, your boss or your, look, even your spouse, 
It doesn't say have the same mindset as those things. It says have the same mindset as Christ. And here's why I think that there's something beautiful about that. Because even, so in a marriage relationship, okay, if I'm calibrating my mind to Shannon, then there are things where I might agree or not agree. Or what, so I'm constantly, that's where wars and fights are coming from. But if I'm calibrating my mind to Christ, and she is calibrating her mind to Christ, do you see what I'm saying? It's, it's different. Which is why it allows us then, if you're in an abusive situation, to not calibrate your mindset to your spouse's mindset who's abusing you, which is why it says, it doesn't, it says uh, to, you know, your needs above theirs, but it doesn't say to ignore your needs. It's not codependency. It's something completely different than that because I'm calibrated with Christ, which means I can serve. And on the other hand, if you're just serving, 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 trying to fill up, that's a whole other way to try to fill up with vain glory. You can put that down because now I'm calibrated to Christ. When you think of a tire, think of the spokes that go on the tire, bike tire, any cyclists in here? The spokes go to the, to the what? Not to each other, but to the center, the axle. If I'm calibrating my spoke to anything but the center, it won't work. Which is why it talks about living in harmony with each other. What we saw this morning was musicians and vocalists all playing different parts, but they served the same song. So living in harmony means that I might not be the same as you and you're not the same as me, but I'm not calibrating to you. You're not calibrating to me. I'm calibrating to Christ who is the axle, who will not change, who will not fail. And here's why this matters more than anything and then I'm gonna hang this up. Because Jesus says in John 17 that the glory that I had in me before the earth began, Father, this was a prayer he prayed for you, which is insane. He prayed that prayer for you, that the glory that was in me before the foundations of the earth would be in you. Not a vain glory, an eternal glory. A glory that will last forever. Because look, if you're an atheist, you have to admit, you may not want to, but it's not intellectually honest. You have to admit that you don't matter. Because at some point, have you guys ever done those generations things, the ancestry.com, and you go back, you're like, I don't, two generations ago, I don't know who my parents, grandparents were. They lived their entire lives, I don't know who they were because it didn't matter after that. And you might say, oh yeah, but look, I'm, I'm, I'm an ambitious person, I'm, gonna, I'm Elon Musk, I'm gonna build these cars, I'm gonna go to space, dancing monkeys, whatever, we're gonna do the whole thing with Tesla. But one day, it says the stars are gonna fall, the mountains will crumble. By the way, even if you're not biblical, you can understand that our star will someday fade out to nothing, and everything that ever happened on our little blue dot will be gone forever, including and not limited to you. But in Christ, the glory lasts beyond that. The glory that he's put in you, the fact that you mattered so much that he came to you. He died for you gladly so that your glory would remain because one day we will be like the Garden of Eden. and One day we will return to that. And until then, know that you matter infinitely. 
and you can walk in humility. Humility is not something that, it's like not a one and done. I don't get to carve that notch on my gun for Jesus and move on. First Peter says, put on humility. I put on a shirt today, and you all are like, thank God. It was a clean one. You were here last week. It <laughs> yeah, it's pretty clean. <laughs> I did laundry yesterday. <laughs> I will say this. My car smells really bad this week after the water. Anyway, it's a whole other story. Put on humility this morning. What is First Peter? And he goes on to say it's chapter 5. Because God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Don't wake up tomorrow on the opposing end of God. He's going to give grace to you. And what is humility? Believing the truth about myself, that I am so bad that Jesus had to die, but I'm so important that he did it gladly. I matter that much. That's not vain glory. That is kabod glory. I'm saying that word all wrong. Hebrew guys don't get me. The heaviness of the kabod. Stand to your feet. Let's pray. Gang, I hope that, I hope you hear me, that you can't live in harmony with each other unless you have that kind of humility. The calibration to Christ, and tomorrow when you wake up, and that, that whisper of the vainglory and the selfish ambition, you get to crucify it all over and allow the humility to rise up inside of you. How awesome would it be to be in a church in a group full of people that that's how we loved each other? I think that's amazing. That's the kind of thing that the world desperately is crying out for right now. And it's the one thing that Jesus has the corner on, which is love and truth. Heavenly Father, I pray that these words will be a light and a lamp for all of us today. As we humble ourselves in the sight of you, knowing that Jesus, by humbling himself, was then made the greatest that you, by humbling ourselves, move us up. Oh, that's such a promise. We're so excited about it. And I'm so excited when I think about the idea of a family of Jesus people just living in humility together, accomplishing great things with a godly ambition and with an amazing Holy Spirit humility in all of us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.